0: Welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a very serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians, where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. My name is Dr. Bark T. Schertz. I am a herpetologist and an evolutionary biologist, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Ethan Kosak.
1: Hey, I'm Ethan Kosak. I'm a cartoonist and general layabout.
0: And Gabriel Lugetto.
2: And I'm Gabriel Ugueto, and I'm a paleo artist, scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. Ugh.
0: And we are joined this episode by a guest host, Hiral Naik.
3: Hi everyone. I'm a snake ecologist from South Africa.
0: So, Hiral is going to be joining us as a guest host on this episode, and uh, at the end of the episode, we'll be having a, an interview with her, with, uh, well, her and Gabriel and me and where we talk about um, her background, how she got into herpetology, and all of the exciting things that have happened and, and some of her cool research and what she's working on right now. Very comprehensive.
2: On a super cool group of snakes.
0: Very cool group of snakes. The Lamprophids. More on that at the end of the episode. So, dear listeners, hello and welcome back. Um, we are gonna dive right in, I think, to talking about some pretty awesome recent research uh that has that has just been published there's some exciting new things um perhaps let's start off with talking about the new global phylogeny of the turtles so this is a paper that was published in pnas pnas for those of us with a An infantile sense of humor. Um, Every every time. (laughs) Um, The the title of the paper, so this is by Robert C. Thompson and colleagues. The title of the paper is A Global Phylogeny of Turtles Reveals a Burst of Climate-Associated Diversification on Continental Margins. Um, And and this paper is kind of long-awaited by those of us who are interested in turtles because the availability of turtle phylogenetics has been pretty substandard let's say until now especially in comparison to the squamates for instance where we've had a very good sampling of a lot of the different organisms of a lot of the different groups the phylogeny of turtles has been really lacking and it's kind of important because i don't know if the general public is aware of this but turtles as a group are or, well, turtles and tortoises have repeatedly transitioned into the aquatic niche. So, uh, the, you know, the, it's not that all of the swimming turtles are necessarily one single clade of swimming turtles, but rather they have moved into and out of um, uh, aquatic habits a lot. And this kind of study not only does it give us a little bit of information on you know the, the actual biogeographic origins of the group, but it's also really important for our understanding of when did the turtles become, you know, marine? When did they become um, uh, aquatic in their various different instances? And where do the the tortoises sit in the in the tree of life here? So, the study is. Um, I mean, it has at its, as its centerpiece um, one figure spread over two pages um, that is the phylogeny of the tree. And I think the, one of the most interesting things from my perspective, bearing in mind that I know shit all about the, the paleo history of turtles, is that the tortoises are deeply nested within the tree. So the, the, the Testudinidae, which are the, the tortoises, are sister to the Geoemids. Uh, people might know Geoemids because I believe the painted turtle is a Geoemid, um, and are very far down the tree. And some of the, some of the deepest branches within uh, the, the turtles, uh, the deepest branch of extant turtles, are the pleurodires which are the side necked turtles. Well, include the side-neck turtles. There's also the um, uh, the Podocnemids, which are the big-headed turtles that are found uh, in South America and Madagascar. Big-headed.
2: This is the river turtles, right? Yeah, big-headed
0: river turtles. I think they're called. Uh, I I don't really know the. the...
1: Talk about
2: crappy, crappy common names. That's another
1: one that used to be really common. If I'm remembering right, It's another way. Really, really really common in the hobby. No, if no, you've the, ever the seen a podocnemis, you would know that it doesn't endangered. have a big head.
2: Yes. So Sorry? that's a very bad bad common name. <laughs> which which is a bad name? If you've ever seen a podocnemis, you would know that it doesn't have a big head. On the contrary, they have quite small heads. So, it's well, the, it's really the Malagasy
0: bad species ha- has a very big head. I think that's. But I'm talking biggest.
2: about podocnemis, which is yeah. the basis of the family.
0: Yeah, podocnemid like the. Uh, 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 what's it called?
2: Uh, but I'm talking about 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 product names, ah, So I see, I see,
0: I see, yeah. I see. Uh, we all right. were just we, we
1: should say we were just griping about common names before we started recording. Yes. Because I was talking about how I think pink tongue skink is the dumbest possible <laughs> common name ever because all skinks are pink tongue skinks except for blue tongue skinks.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, some some skinks have like a black tip to their tongue, but. Yes. In general, it's not smart to name a group or a name a species after a, it a should common trait. just be called a
1: normal-tongued skink.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, th- so the, the, this paper is really cool. Um, of course, it goes into all kinds of different things about the biogeographic history of the group. But I think the most important thing, the thing for which this paper is likely to be cited highest, is the fact that it gives us a, a robust phylogeny of the base, uh, well, of all of the the turtles and tortoises, which is
2: so. Very I don't remember what the phylogenetic hypothesis, you know, clearly was about before this paper. But it seems to me that a lot of this is similar to what we already knew, right? Like probably. The, the, the sp- the split between pliotheria and cryptodire in the late Triassic, early Jurassic, kind of thing, yeah. kind of seems correct me, like something I I remember. And also the fact that uh, Pleuroderans are kind of like a, you know, uh, um, the early divergent branch yes. seems to be yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I I uh, are they still archosaurs?
2: <laughs> <laughs> they were never. By the way, they were never archosaurs. They were closer to Archosaurus than, Okay, okay. Than, than lepidosauromorphs, but they were never within arcosaur arcosauria. They were considered arcosauromorphs probably. Hmm.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. But My, nobody but, knows that we still don't really know where they fit. No. Yeah. Which They're... is kind of ast- that's actually kind of astonishing when you think about it. Like that whole there's a whole branch of reptiles that we just were like, eh, you know, <laughs> yeah in many ways
0: there are many groups for which this is true but not so many diverse modern like many groups that have diverse modern diversity great modern diversity um (laughs) in in which that's true right so you know figuring out where what the relationship is between the archosaurs so the, the birds and crocodilians right and the um well, and the dinosaurs, of course, and turtles and tortoises plus the, you know, the the Lepidosauria has been a serious source of uh, uncertainty, and that problem does not seem to be going away at the moment. Um,
2: There is a lot of conflict between morphological and molecular data. And the the molecular result is not super strong, and the big part of it is that, you know, people have to remember that we're missing a lot of, taxa that are extinct that we cannot sample. So right. there is they a are huge they're
1: highly factor. derived pterosaurs. Calling it. Out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but I'm, but I'm going to say something and this will put things in perspective. So the earliest example of, uh, of a of a turtle relative is an animal from the Permian that just recently, there was this paper published, I, I think a couple of months ago that proposes that that, that animal is not really a reptile, but a synapse, so you can take that into consideration when you think about you know what we know about turtle evolution
0: that's still not as extreme as the chameleon fossil that turned out to be an albinerpattonted amphibian which <laughs> oh yeah. oh yeah, which
1: we've covered before
0: <laughs> we have covered it before as a little little bit of a paleontological whoopsie that uh um is is going to be a long-term problem i think for, for or, some... well
1: that's also like the the dinosaur bird
0: lizard uh, head oculodontavus yeah yeah yeah, that's a topic for another day and another episode. I think, uh, I don't remember what so, episode wh- that is. I don't even know what episode this is, guys. We're not the Common Descent Podcast. We can't do that. So <laughs> we that. have talked about Oculent um, Davis in a previous episode. Go find it. You can listen to the others as you search. It's good fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, com.
2: What do you think about this paper, Mark? going back to it to see if we got no go on a super long t- tangent. Um, <laughs> what do you think about, what do you think about this paper? What do you th- what part of this paper do you think is the most um, newsworthy or, 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 you know, important to highlight? Well,
0: I mean, having a robust and, and dated phylogeny of all the turtles is something that, that really has, what do they say? They have 98% of the genera of all turtles. That's that's huge. I mean, that, that yeah. puts us at a much much better perspective in terms of uh, uh, of figuring out the evolution of the turtles. I like to think of trees uh, of, of papers that have that are centered around trees like this, not only in terms of the knowledge that they add, but they are a huge resource. I think Harol, you have some experience with this as well, right? Using the the snake phylogeny and trying to an, an, analyze things on it, right?
3: Yeah, having a, a, a correctly dated phylogeny is so helpful in terms of getting all the ecological data that you need that follows on right so if you have a good foundation then the rest kind of follows through
0: this is an entire domain essentially Uh, you know i one of my very favorite researchers or in terms of the way that he you know the the software that he's developing and the way that he interacts with the the general research comu- community is Liam Revel he wrote phytools the R package and his i mean that that is an, uh, an invaluable um uh, tool for all kinds of uh, of the analysis that that we do in terms of the the comparative method and and doing comparative phylogenetic analysis and it is it is designed to take trees like this one, and then do all kinds of very cool uh, statistics, figuring out where did the traits come from, how how have the different groups evolved, and and what can we say from those data sets. So, yeah, I, I would say that that is the number one thing that stuck out to me because you know my one of my colleagues sent this paper to me by email, and said this is this is fantastic. We have now. Um, a good tree that we can actually use for understanding this group, and I think Gabriel, you've already highlighted one of the one of the things, one of the big missing points. Well, it, you and Ethan have have highlighted this missing point of we still don't know where the stupid turtles fit within the the bigger reptilian tree, right? Um, but having this piece of the puzzle completed allows us to go a little bit higher, and it's it's a relief to see that the gap. At the base of this tree, well, it's, it's hard to say based on the, on the um, data phylogeny like this, but the, the time between the branches at the base of the tree of the turtles here is between, I would say, 175 and 225 million years. Like, this is the, that's the length, the depth of the gap between the split between cryptodires and pleurodires, and the first split within the cryptodires
2: yeah so late triassic early jurassic
0: exactly and having a gap of that size that amount of time in there means that we have a relatively decent chance of being able to um uh, to to resolve those basal nodes and that's important if we want to go and figure out the actual evolution of these of these groups that means we can have some confidence in the fact that that's actually the correct branch um it would be more useful of course to not have this in terms of uh evolutionary time but in terms of coalescent time for uh, figuring that out precisely but it looks it looks good to me um i also just think it's it's so cool to see some of these Mm. groups in in context i mean speaking as someone who hadn't spent a lot of time looking at the turtle phylogeny before looking at this paper um realizing that the the terrestrial tortoises are really an aberrant group within a group of otherwise semi-aquatic and fully aquatic turtles um, is so bizarre. <laughs> uh, Gabriel, I have a question for you. Where in the tree would our good friend Arch- Archelon, Archelon fit, Well, which we all know is y- your favorite extinct turtle. I was about to say, yeah.
2: you guys know that <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of turtles in general. Um, I am not sure actually It's because they they keep their
0: secrets Within (laughs) within their shells (laughs) Sneaky Um, bastards
2: I think they're called protostegates The group that Archelon is Hmm? I might be very wrong But I think that's what they're called And I'm not sure exactly where in the tree they would fit I don't know how related to um, Other sea turtles they are I don't think they're that closely related it would surprise me,
0: that. given like the shape of their plastron and stuff. But I also do. You know what era they're from?
2: Uh, you give the Archelon. Archelon. Yeah. Cretaceous. Yeah, late Cretaceous.
0: Cretaceous. Okay.
2: Late. Late Cretaceous.
0: Late Cretaceous. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, that puts them roughly in the range of. There's a possibility that they would be related to the sea turtles or sister to all of the extant sea turtles.
2: I can I can tell you in a minute. They are in a, according to this, they are in a group that, oh, yeah. They're, so they're in a, in a group called pankelonoidea, which is sort of related to kelonoidea, which includes chelonids and dermochelids. So they are related, distantly related to other saturns.
0: Cool. Okay. Again, what learned. And so we can, we can move on, uh, from, from that interesting paper to talk about some other four-legged friends, which are the skinks. So there was a paper that was published. It has, I don't know, 100 authors? It's a lot of authors. <laughs> it's not 100 authors, it's, it's, but it's a lot. Um, it is close. It's close. It's published in Biological Conservation, and you might have heard of it because it was all over the place on, on Twitter and, and Facebook for me and whatever. Uh, it's called Conservation Status of the World's Skinks, Skinkidae. Uh, taxonomic and geographic patterns in extinct uh, in extinction risk. So uh, this was published in Biological Conservation. The paper itself is not very long; so it's only twelve pages, um, including the references. But what I so it's very useful to have this kind of resource because it gives us the ability to do a better comparison of the kind of uh, threat statuses that the different groups have. Have you know wh- where it, it tells us first of all what where is the global distribution of species richness within a, a, a group like this? You know skinks are really found across all of the continents except for South Africa. Uh, South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Tried to say Antarctica and got slightly uh, 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 missed um, across all of the continents except for Antarctica. Um, but I it's you know i think we're all moderately familiar with skinks as these sort of long slender Pink stripy tongued. <laughs> pink-tongued typically <laughs> lizards um and we we also i think many of us know that skinks one of their favorite things to do is to lose their legs um, from an evolutionary perspective, many, 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 many skinks have have gone and, and lost their legs. But I was not fully aware of the density of skink diversity in Australia, yeah. and not just Australia, but also parts of Australasia. So New Guinea has extremely high diversity of of skinks as well.
2: That's the first thing that I saw when I saw this paper. I was like, whoa! Yes, yeah. The- the there, there are locations
0: in Australia, especially in northeastern Australia, that have 66 sympatric species of skink. There are not a lot of places in the world where a single family of lizards has that level of diversity. But, but I'm
2: going to say that the reason, one of the reasons, and this is why I think, is that a lot of, you know... Other lizards in other parts of the world are doing the same, are covering the same ecological niches niches that those skinks are doing in Australia.
1: Like Jimmies. Yeah.
2: The like, like Lacertids, yeah. like a lot of those. You That's know, true. Yeah.
0: yeah, the cordylids, I guess, as well. Certainly, the cordylids are occupying that large skink ecomorph um, that is not otherwise occupied within Australia, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, from. the. The Australian skinks are truly fantastic. I mean, they have skinks that live in social groups and, and have active parental care. They yeah. have ar- arboreal skinks. I, I mean, uh, uh, Prasinahima, which is not found in Australia, I think, I think it's only in, in, in New Guinea. The is an arboreal skink that has lamellae on its toes like a gecko and has green or, blood.
2: Or, or an anole.
0: Or, or anole, yes. Um,
1: we so we try to not to mention on those on the show.
2: Yeah, but we had to mention.
1: Them. <laughs> I so, like uh, I like the uh, notice the um, the red-eyed crocodile skinks. I think mm, those are my those
0: are my also. Favorites. When I found out that those were skinks, my mind was a little bit blown. Does not look like a skink. Yeah, does not look like
1: so, a skink.
2: So, <clears throat> what I want to know is that do the paper talk about um, the the way the, the biogeographical um, hypothesis about how the family got distributed around the world, because it's very interesting to me how poorly diverse they are in the Neotropics, for example.
0: So I mean, one of by, the big problems, but
2: poorly, di- poorly diverse, I, I should, I, I, I should say in relation to other lizards because we still have a lot of skink species, but certainly, yeah. you know, not so much diversity in um, ecological niches or genera.
0: Yeah, so I I mean, part of the thing, part of the reason it might give the impression of having um, low species richness, total species richness within South America and Central America might be related to very strong turnover, right? A, A heat map like they've used in the first figure of their paper shows only how many species there are in a given location. But if you have very strong geographic turnover, then you would always have like one or two species per location, and you know that's just uh, that's sort of um, misleading in a figure like this. But the answer to your question is no; they don't have a phylogeny within the paper. The as far as I'm aware, the skink phylogeny remains relatively poorly resolved at the species level because sampling is relatively low. Um, and, and I don't know how bad that problem is within um Australia because I know there are massive amounts of uh, of work being done on Australian skinks um, in terms of you know species diversification. They have very weird things that were there there are species that are actively in the process of transitioning from viviparity to oviparity and back um, and all of that kind of research is is really fostered and, and very intensely carried out in. Australia. So, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a, to, to some extent, I think there's a bias here as well. There, I mean, there are many authors on this paper. There are not a lot of authors in, from some of the places where there is a relatively high diversity. Um, even if it's not quite as high as the Australian diversity, right? And that's a bit of a shame uh, but but working towards a tree of the skinks is I think a really important goal that we have not gotten to yet. Um, so yeah, that's missing. There's there's not really a discussion of the biogeography of the, the skinks as a whole, nor their evolution. Um, but that's not really what they were going for. They were mostly trying to figure out what is predisposing skinks to being locally threatened and what is the... the um, the relationship between geography taxonomy and uh and threat status of the of the different skinks um, and that I think is you know unsurprisingly most the most threatened skinks are the ones that are in Australia because there's just the the great the greatest density of them um, but there so there are a few skinks that have gone extinct, right? Um, yeah, the, in the Caribbean
2: islands, in the Antilles, there are several species. of Afghanistan that are very near extinction.
0: Yeah, exactly. So there there are some species that are close to extinction. I think in most cases, those are island restricted. So there are, I think on Christmas Island, there is also a skink that has gone extinct or, or is close to extinction. Um, but on the whole, I think a lot of skinks are actually moderately resilient to habitat alteration, right? And it's, what we can take away from this paper, I mean, just looking at at some of the values that they've highlighted in the abstract, uh, 14% of all skinks have, have, are coded as having declining populations within the IUCN, And um, some 14% are listed as data deficient. And, you know, so important to mention, there are, according to the to this paper, one thousand seven hundred and fourteen described skink species. So there are a lot of skinks. So when we say the fourteen percent are are data deficient and and also fourteen percent have declining populations, you know, fourteen percent of one thousand seven hundred is a lot. That's still a lot of species. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think taxonomy is a big problem, so like the actual how well understood the skinks are is a really yeah. major problem in many places in Madagascar, we as, have lots of species that are waiting as, to be described. And I was,
2: I was going to say, in the Americas in general, um, skinks tend to be very morphologically conservative. Mm. So it's not super easy sometimes to, you know, taxonomy has taken a while for, to, to recognize the different lineages. And that's a big case of that is in South America where a lot of the species have been recently described until very recently they were all considered one or two species. And now we yeah. have 20, 30 well, species coming out. Of the-
1: that's kind of true in North America as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got like the, the, all of them are sort of five line skink
2: ish, uh, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's why I say that in the Americas they are very morphologically yeah, conservative. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, even, even today, We have it, it, and anybody in the United States who has run into a skink, they always like, What is this, a five light skink or is it a broad head skink? You don't know what you're looking at until you like pick it up sometimes.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's very true. Skinks for me were one of the very first groups that got me excited and interested in herpetology. I I think the same is true for Herolis, people will hear later, (laughs) right? They're just so attractive. They're so, I don't know. There's something about them that really makes them, makes children want to chase them, right?
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: So I, I, I don't know. What What do you think about the diversity of, of skinks within South Africa, Haral? Right?
3: So I think um, it's, you know, again, I think they, they're not a group that's being explored very much. Um, especially in terms of the diversity. Um, I can tell you now the same sort of thing. You can look at um, a striped skink and a variegated skink and kind of, you know, not know the difference if you're looking from very far until you pick them up. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Um, I think, uh, again, this paper is is a good foundation for understanding um, the rest of what needs to be done, um, which is where I think uh, a lot of research is headed with this great.
0: Yeah. I think it's also fantastic that we see, so, so they've included within the paper also a, a plot of um, species accumulation over time uh, with descriptions, species descriptions. And we can see that there has been an almost constant rate of species description in skinks since the 1830s and 40s. That's amazing because most groups have recently undergone a huge burst in the rate of description but the skinks have just been pretty consistent right there's a lot of people are just like oh this one's different and Mm -hmm. one of the useful things is of course that folidosis, the scale patterns on the skinks is super useful in identifying them and describing them i just i i looked
1: up african skink striped skink Mm-hmm. And it looks ridiculously like the North American 5 line skink. Yeah, right down to the yeah. blue, right down to the blue tail.
0: I had this moment when I was in Kansas going herping uh, with some friends, and I saw a western skink. I think is what it's called uh, for mm-hmm. the very first time. That has this the the juvenile has this gorgeous blue tail, and the only other place I've ever seen and caught blue-tailed skinks was in Malawi. When I was a tiny kid. And I was like, this What? I did not What? Why is this yeah. here?
1: <laughs> well the Eastern the, the five lion skinks when their babies have bright blue tails yeah. uh, as well. And that's ridiculous. They can't be closely related,
2: so what No, and they have they they tend to have the same coloration in many parts of the of the world. It's a common pattern.
1: That's yeah. uh I mean that's next level convergence there. That's crazy
0: to some extent there's a great deal of uh, conservative conservative morphology in the very widespread skinks um and and i think that is possibly what's going on between the african skinks and the uh, or you know the south african um, um, skinks and the american ones they're it's possible that they just haven't done a lot but it's it's unusual i guess in the respect that skinks really like to diversify ecologically like they they do it very well in madagascar they've done it fantastically in australia and and australasia so yeah that
2: is what i would like to know that's the part that i'm interested that is not answering in the paper and that's the part that i'm most interested in why they have diversified
0: there and not in
2: and America. in other places. Like, were there mm-hmm. the other groups already occupying those niches by the time Skinks got there? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the kind of question that, you know, you really want to know. Because they're obviously very adaptive. Ad, it's a very adaptive radiation of,
0: right. of lizards. I, I wonder they, if they have their point of origin within Australia. Because... That's
2: what... Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, that shows a little bit of, the, of, of my own cluelessness about the group. But I would guess... Um, based on based on those those diversity estimates, that they must have, have originated in a, that at least to within be, Gondwana, tends, uh, within that, southern yeah. Gondwana.
2: That tends to be the case, right? Usually, where you see the most diversity within a group is where they usually originated. It's not always the case, but
0: not always. But it yeah, it seems
2: to be, yeah. yeah.
3: But it could it could very well be like the lapids and their explosive radiation in Australia as well and it would be interesting to see that dynamic between um you know the the predator prey uh, snakes versus True. lizards yeah. or skinks yeah um
2: definitely
0: that would be really interesting
2: i mean there're many avenues in all, all of the
0: the all of the spiny skinks of which i'm aware are are universally within australasia and australia right I, I can't think of any outside like in in the americas or in uh in africa no. that are really <clears throat> thorny
3: so we've got a few um cordylids, but the um, cordylids
0: are diseases. not skinks
3: no okay okay yes but that's
2: what i'm saying so in other parts of the world that niche is used by other that, that's, that's exactly what i was saying. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. It's used because in south america we have gymnast, gymnast doing that yeah uh, in the United States, you have like iguanian star spiky and so you're, it's not
1: you're thinking of like, uh, I can't say the I- igernia or, uh,
0: yeah, igurnia for yeah. instance, yeah. or, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the crocodile skinks that we were mentioning before. Yeah. Um, I mean, I- igurnia, I- I- if, if anybody is interested in some of the most fascinating behavior in any lizard. Go look up some of the research that's been carried out on Igernia and their parental care and, and stuff. They are yeah. so cool. <laughs> it, it's wild, yeah. I, I saw some um, for sale at Hum uh, a few years ago, and it was the first time I'd seen one in person. And they are just the most charming little lizards. I think they would be fantastic if you had a large enough enclosure to have a family group they would be really interesting to keep they
1: they almost i mean body shape wise they almost are like uromastics or something very like much so mm, yeah yeah well yeah.
2: We, we should also say that a lot of uh, skinks also in a lot of places like in like in the neotropics reproduce differently because they have almost like a mammal-like placenta You're right and and they don't you know so it th- that also can be giving them a, a, some sort of advantage ecologically or compared to other groups which is why they have been able to you know infiltrate quote-unquote an area that was you know occupied by so many other lizard species so there are so many avenues in which you could this you know you could like here i'll say this is a great foundation right to start exploring other avenues of, of, of research
0: exactly and, and also, you know, in terms of the conservation thing, um, I think it's, it's critical to have this kind of baseline for a lot of the work that happens next. Um, for the amphibians of Madagascar, a similar paper was published, I think, in 2009 or 2010. And it, it sort of set, again, the baseline from which everything then progresses. Um, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but... The, the chameleon specialist group for the IUCN is, is also thinking about doing something similar, but has decided that we will um, embark on that plan once the new assessments are all done. So for those who don't know, IUCN red list assessments are done uh, periodically. Um, and I think depending on the different group, the, the periodicity differs. Uh, but the, the plan is to have a reassessment of all the chameleons relatively soon. And so maybe in the future we'll have a, a similar perspective because it would be very interesting to see how the different families of lizards, obviously family is such a meaningless category, but if you if you divide the tree at some arbitrary level, it would be really interesting to see which group truly is the most threatened because the the hypothesis that that we chameleon researchers are bandying about at least is that uh, chameleons are possibly the most threatened lizards in the world. Um, but who knows? It really depends where you draw the line. So, okay. Uh, and now we can move on. Let's talk about some horny crocodiles, shall we?
2: <laughs> well, I, I thought it would be a great time because we have neglected crocodilians so much from this podcast. That's so and true. They are reptiles, people, so, um, you know, they're, we, they're
1: basically birds.
2: Well, but, they, but, you know... Very angry birds. Try to, try to, yes. <laughs> Very angry scaly Very birds. Very toothy,
0: angry birds, yes.
2: <laughs> so, I, there is this super cool paper um, called Paleogenomics Illuminates the Evolutionary History of the Extinct Holocene Horned Crocodile of Madagascar, Boae Robustus, <clears throat> that was written by Hekala et al., and was in communications
0: in community- biology which communications is
2: biology, yeah.
0: a journal i that is very new
2: but it's from nature
0: yes it's from the nature group
2: it's from the nature group so these are these horn-
1: are uh these are big big boys right these are big crocodiles
2: yeah well the, what makes them really interesting is that they had all this crazy uh morphology where they had like this horn um I don't know what that skull in crocodilians is like. These uh, super temporal.
0: Yeah, it's a super temporal extension. It's basically, yeah. it, it it's basically they have very angry eyebrows. That's that's what's <laughs> going on. They they have these large knobs above the yeah in the super temporal region, um, basically just behind the eye at, at the back of the head. If I was to try to ride one, could I use them as handlebars? Potentially. <laughs> They would not give you a lot of grip. Oh. Um,
3: No. So I recently (laughs) um, sat on one. (laughs) sat on a crocodile? So I injected... (laughs) Anyways, we were doing some research, so we had to insert um, a paralytic drug into crocodiles. Um, So I had the whole experience of, you know, covering the eyes. um, Wow. um, Yeah, it was really pretty cool.
0: That sounds like fun back in that, the day. That,
2: not Nile crocodiles?
3: Yeah.
0: Nice.
2: Which are notoriously bad tempered, right?
1: Yeah, they are not known for being yeah. friendly.
2: Yeah, there's a,
0: a very no. um, well-known cichlid researcher was killed and I believe eaten by a Nile crocodile in Madagascar. <laughs> um, yeah, so, not good. But this is so. Madagascar actually brings us onto a relevant point. The feuille robustus is the name of this of this uh, crocodile, the horned crocodile, and it's from Madagascar. Um, it was found in in Western Madagascar, and there has been some debate as to how when these these things went extinct.
2: And what because were they were related to too? Oh, uh, is this, this one of those weird
1: out. weird crocodiles that went extinct, like the walking around on two legs and no eat, actually, eating plants no. and so it, it <laughs> might
0: have had a so slightly dead. more um, a slightly more upright posture but I don't think there is any so that's how it's usually it's usually illustrated in the standing posture that most crocodiles can uh, can adopt
1: that semi-erect sort of yeah that yeah. that
0: posture that you sometimes see alligators adopting um, So interestingly, there appear to be folk tales, or -hmm. or at least there is, how do you say, cultural knowledge of there being two different forms of crocodiles in Western Madagascar. So people discern there having been large and small crocodiles. But around the 19... 20s 1930s? I don't remember now what exactly it says in the, so there's a a chapter in a book that's coming out this year or next year, probably next year, um, that goes into the history of the Nile crocodile in Madagascar in great depth. And there was a mass extirpation of Nile crocodiles in Madagascar in the 20th century. Mm. So if there had been fly among them during that period, they are gone (laughs) well
1: i was going to also point out that even in the relatively recent past a lot of animals were referred to as crocodiles that were not necessarily crocodiles um this came up a while ago when we were talking about an illustration that i had found that said crocodile but was very clearly depicting a (laughs) Euromastix, and Oh wow, but, that's a but, big deal. But you go back and you look at, but you go back and you look at the the writings from that time, and they were just, they called them little crocodiles. Mm, it was like yes. a, it was it was just a name, yeah. you know. So, um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it could be something like that also. Who, where it was you
2: know. who 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 like who where. Did... Who? <laughs> uh,
1: I, I, I'll have to go back who and talk. Who called po- a crocodile? <laughs> this was a, from a This was a conversation I had a few months ago, so I don't remember exactly who the artist was originally, but it was from one of those databases of public domain Victorian era of art. Oh. And uh, and somebody was saying, this looks so dumb, it doesn't look like a crocodile at all. And it's very clearly not supposed to be a crocodile. You can see mm. it's supposed to be a Euromastix. Hmm. So
0: yeah, there, so there are certainly bizarre stories like that. I think in Madagascar, the, the way that the, this study was carried out that I can half remember would have, been, it would have been pretty clear if they were talking about two different things. The, the genus name, Vwai, is the Malagasy word for crocodile. So in, in general, the, the people do know, um, uh, know of these, or certainly know of crocodiles. They can be a serious problem in the rainy season in Madagascar um
2: so what i've read is that there were there were there are folk tales in madagascar that differentiate between two types of crocodiles yes exactly where there's only one alive today but these animals were not you know they're very recently extinct very this, recently this this the skulls from when they took the, the, the samples are just 1300 to 1400 years old yeah, yeah. and is that's exactly around that
0: the time that that madagascar was settled in large numbers from uh, uh from basically borneo from from um, the yeah,
1: this Almost is uh this is bordering on uh, cryptozoology. You guys. Oh, I'm
2: sure. Yeah. No, I actually think there's this. What's the name so, of the stupid show on Animal Planet where the guy oh, goes yeah. looking for for? I think that one episode is about looking for this crocodile.
0: It's possible. There are a whole bunch yes. of of extinct megafaunal species in Madagascar, right? So there we have these um, the very large gorilla-like lemurs that went extinct with the people who arrived. We have the... um, Sloth lemurs, too. Yeah, exactly. The the sloth lemurs. We have the elephant birds. We have giant tortoises um, that are, turns out to be probably identical with uh, Aldabra shellis. So there are these very, very large, numerous large megafaunal groups that have gone extinct, some of which kind of persist within folktales so that people will tell you that they have seen one of the elephant birds within the last like 20 years or whatever. And, right. you know, no, probably not. <laughs> can I, but, uh, can yeah. I take a brief aside
1: because I just worked on something that is in the same genre. Yeah. Uh, I did art for the International uh, Cryptozoology Museum for their upcoming expedition to go look for the uh, Trinity Alps giant salamander, which is my favorite cryptid. I don't really think it's there, but it's a giant. Uh, it's 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 an Andreas that people say they saw in Northern California. Uh, right out of all places, you know. You know. Here's the thing: <laughs> Northern California, Trinity. Uh, does have habitat that's pretty similar to the habitat andreas is found in in asia mm-hmm. and it's not a huge stretch to say that crypto branch and, cri- crypto could be i mean we have they have a north they american are origin in america yeah. right right so. i i think that it's there is a possible explanation that i mean there are a lot of uh
0: it's rainy... when he's going for a swim yes
2: that's...
0: i i don't think they're going
2: to find anything to be I honest, have but Count Me in no camp for that. But,
0: <laughs> but I would love to be wrong, and uh, of course, you know, uh, I, I, that's how I feel generally about cryptozoology. Me I too. Would love me too. to be wrong about some of these things, but I just don't see it as possible. No.
2: I think. It's but so I got paid
0: to. I got paid to draw.
1: I got paid to draw a giant crypto salamander for the International <laughs> Cryptozoology Museum, and I think that's Which, great. Let's so. be honest,
0: is the same thing as drawing a mud puppy. <laughs> not a uh, a Sorry. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, yes. It's not. Yes. Matter.
1: Just just scale it up. You know. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I mean, the like idea of one standing up on two legs and walking around does look very much like Bigfoot in my mind. So that's
1: well, that's war with the newts. That's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> it, it, we've come full circle. We have.
1: No, I was gonna say there is also the possibility there are there California is home to a lot was home over the last hundred years to a lot of Chinese and Japanese immigrants, so it's also possible that they that there are introduced Andreas living there, which would be awesome too. That so. would be very
2: cool. I just have very a very high difficulty believing that the United States, which is one of the most highly populated and which has one of the you know, people have gotten here everywhere. I mean, it, yeah. it's like I always say, uh, what's, oh, I want to go somewhere in COVID in Florida where there are no people. There's nowhere in Florida where there <laughs> people. Everything yeah. here is full of people. Well, I cannot go anywhere. Okay.
1: I, I agree with you. But also, to be fair, Northern Cal- California no, is pretty. I know. I know. You know California
2: is, a, is, more, uh, is yeah. more sparsely populated. But still.
1: I, I have an easier time believing in a rogue crypto blanket than 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 Bigfoot, you know. Oh, so, well, I mean... of course.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, uh, an animal out of place is always more reasonable to believe in than a fictitious animal. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So but, anyway, like, back to right, Um uh, <laughs> Sorry. sorry.
2: <laughs> so what I was going to say is that one of the cool things about this paper is that one of the things that came out with this paper is that it shows that the ori- origin of crocodilians, or, croco- or crocodilites in particular, is Africa. And from there they have expanded around the world, which I thought it was super cool. They have a very good a very good phylogenetic tree that shows uh, all living crocodilian species and how Voai you know relates to them and it used to they used to believe that voai was an um, Austerolimid, Austerolimid, um crocody, right? So means is that osteolimus is that tiny I forgot what the common name is talking about crappy common names but that, what the common name for Osteolemus uh tetraspis is, but it's a very small crocodiliate that look almost like a like a like a smooth fronted caiman from South America. They have kind of the similar look they're small
0: they're called dwarf crocodiles um so so i I, <laughs> I want to say yes, yes, maybe maybe african origin or yes no let's let's put it the other way very probably african origin but why robustus is the, the the divergence from the rest of the crocodilids is surprisingly recent so they place it at about the, about 25 million years ago
2: yeah but that's from the crocodilines.
0: Yes, from the crocodilines, yes, sure, 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 but Madagascar was isolated six well uh, yeah, essentially eighty million years ago, so it swam there, which is cool yeah
4: um
0: and and so we should we should point out the like the meat and gravy of this paper is that they have sequenced DNA from this specimen, so this is uh Paleogenomics, um, which is what the, the group here in, um, in Potsdam that I'm in does, uh, getting DNA out of uh, fossil, subfossil bones.
2: Although um, we have to say that these are barely fossils. Barely so fossils. Recent.
0: I mean, this is not, not really a fossil. This is, uh, yeah. this is quite recent. Um, still, it has all kinds of problems with, uh, you know, with, with decay and uh dna does not preserve particularly well in these no but to be honest
2: ways. i was surprised when i when i read this paper i mean i was like these things are a so recent i'm surprised this is this they are just now taking DNA sample from, this, from these specimens. I would imagine it's something that is so recent as 1300, 1400 years ago, they would have done this a long time ago, especially when there were questions about the taxonomic position of Y in particular. I
1: wanna, I wanna clone this thing way more than a thylacine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there, there are two questions that, that are relevant to that, that process, right? So the, the first is getting hold of a specimen is not easy. Um, the animals getting getting all of a specimen of, of the foie outside of Madagascar is not super easy. Um,
2: there are then, a lot of regulations in, in Madagascar. For well,
0: it, it, yes, the, yes, especially pale- because paleontological um, uh, objects are treated as rocks and exported under mineral codes mm. and the mineral uh, laws are even more strict, I think, than the biological laws. So it's it's generally very difficult to export and loan um fossils from Madagascar. Huh.
1: That's which, interesting because I know there's a huge problem with not very far, like Morocco is often criticized for having like, you know, it's the wild west and people are yeah. <laughs> you know, taking stuff they shouldn't be.
0: Yes, I I mean, I don't think it has been historically as much of a problem in Madagascar. To some extent sure. Um, But certainly not to the extent where, you know, we, um, it's not like Brazil, Mm
4: -hmm.
0: where we're finding all of these fundamentally mind boggling fossils that were illegally exported at some point in the past and now are passed off. Um, It's more like it when people do find very cool stuff. It, it becomes a little bit of a complication in order to figure out how how legal it was, whatever. So that has delayed, I think, some of the, the work here. Um, not casting any aspersions on this on this paper, I think this is um, uh, probably fine. I, I notice that there are no Malagasy researchers among the authors, but um, that is often the case, even um, in my own work that has that has been a problem Why in
2: the past. why 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 is that why? a problem? why no why is that a case why is that why, the case,
0: why is that the is case? That a... oh uh in this case i don't really know i don't know many paleontologists working in madagascar i don't personally know any malagasy paleontologists but that, um, for
2: me that well then there's a problem because there are so Ma- Ma- madagascar has a rich fossil history it, yes. they have a, quite a bunch of interesting fossils and there's a lot of research that have been done so how, why how come there's no uh that is a problem. There should some, be some of the recent
0: more... some of the recent mammal things I know have had Malagasy authors on them. This this paper does not. Um and yeah, that that's not not good.
2: Yeah, and by the way, so I don't know if not? any other uh I cannot I, I don't know if any other paper that has been published on Madagascar um fossils have had Malagasy author. So I'm, I might be speaking out of not knowing, but I think there definitely should be. Certainly. They have a ton of, they have a ton of stuff to work on. I mean, there yeah. they, they should definitely be some Malagasy workers there.
0: I can only strongly agree with you. Um, if this is also something that I, to, to, to talk about my own work, uh, have, have tried hard to to promote as well um, we often still have a huge bias in terms of Malagasy authorship and 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 one of the things that we find particularly challenging or I find particularly challenging sometimes is having the Malagasy authors uh, really be engaged with the actual publication um, but that's just a in many times it's a time um, a, a time related issue and you know, it it also depends. Like, I, I think it's important to have the people involved in the field work on the on the authorship list, even if they can't necessarily look at the the manuscript, they wouldn't necessarily understand it. I think that's a really really important thing uh, for people to do, and it's something that we have done quite a bit. Um, but there's also an important. Um, yeah, sometimes it's, it's also important to have acknowledgement. So I, I will admit that I have, there's one paper that I have where I have two co-authors on the paper who are Malagasy who never saw the paper. They never looked at the manuscript, as far as I'm aware. And I also don't think that's a really good practice. <laughs> because then you have people who are on your papers who are like so, not at all involved in the actual uh, but research.
2: But so... <clears throat> So what's happened? Not, what happened with, with, with Malagasy researchers? There have to be Malagasy researchers.
0: There are, yeah, there there are, but there aren't very many. The in, in herpetology, the field is relatively small, um, and the same is true in many of the other fields. The, so, yeah, the education system in Madagascar is is. Um, I
2: imagine, and then they, but there has to be. Uh, they, they have such a rich you know, fossil history, in particular, that I think there has to be more, there has to be more to include the, whatever researchers there are, there have to be more to include them, because they have to, that is what it's gonna, I, I think we're propol- dancing
1: around the issue of colonialism. Yeah.
2: yeah, well, yeah, it's pretty obvious. This is what happened. And there's a there's not there, there is a lot of research. And you know, I can think of a bunch of dinosaurs from Madagascar. and. I don't know again if some of those publications had Malagasy researchers, but I doubt it. And they 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 have to be included in whatever research that is going to come up from Madagascar. It has to be they have to be included.
3: So I think um, this is very true for the rest of Africa as well because um, it's pretty much the same, right? Like um, the the paper with the with the gecko and the fluorescence. I mean, really cool paper. But there are Namibian science, uh, herpetologists that have observed this, right? Um, yeah. It's just a matter of um, having them included. Either you know, there, there's so many different um, things that play a role. Like you don't know these authors because they just they're not on any kind of platform. Um, if you want to contact them to do any kind of research, it, how do you do that? Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think exactly. that's where the problem comes in, and it, it goes for most. Uh, reptilian groups i think a lot more people in europe and and the americas uh north america have published on african herbs than local people have
1: yeah i was going to say it sounds like there, there's an institutional thing here where where it's you know the system has been built that way for a long long time yeah
2: mm-hmm. that's what it is
0: yeah certainly uh, there's yeah, this is a really complicated topic, because when we're talking about this, there's also a certain, like, you do not want to have authors on the list who are only placeholders for their origin. That's yeah. something that I am opposed to. Um, and, and this is why I say, you know, having people who are involved in the field work but have never seen the paper and don't know what it contains and don't know that their names are on it. Having them as authors is, from my perspective, unethical because they have no idea. That's like someone using your well, name. A, and, it,
2: yeah, I and think it's not only unethical. I think it's almost disrespectful, even, because you know you're not. You have to value somebody's work and what what I would like. It's a little bit what they did with that fossil um, of that shark that came out that had the crazy limbs like a wing a bunch of bunch of researchers was from in mexico and there was one Mexican author that nobody heard about or has ever heard about before and apparently the person is not even like uh they just used him as a placeholder and i think that that is respectful i think that you know there are a ton of mexican paleontologists that could have i i
0: I totally agree with you what i'm saying is it's not always possible or some In every case, working within a collaboration within Europe is exactly the same. People who don't actually can't vouch for the research, have never seen the research, shouldn't be authors because they shouldn't be authors. Like You're not an author if you've never looked at the result. So including someone just by name on a paper who cannot really be contacted about it, has no real relevance to it, is not necessarily the right move. That being said, it's extremely important to involve local scientists in the research that you're doing. As long as those scientists are really doing the, like involved in the research, it's not good enough to put their name on the paper without them having being able to say but that to, they were to actually me, involved.
1: That sounds almost like an institutional failing of yeah. the ability to recognize a contributor to a paper who is not necessarily an author in the conventional sense.
0: Right. I agree. This is a, a real problem with, with uh, and, and I've seen blog posts about this and stuff, like our, our current system for acknowledging contrib- contributions to a paper are step one author and step a million are the a- acknowledgments. And right. there's and nothing it, it, in between there should where be we something can say this be- person yeah. contributed fundamentally to this project but is not involved as an author on the paper. Right. Um, and it, and and that i find very difficult especially in these places where you know if i send and some t- of the well, some of the people i've worked with in the field don't have an email address they don't have a telephone number there's no way to get in contact with them about this thing so putting them on an author list is a bit ludicrous right right but to me
1: that's you know it's it's 2021 and our ability to recognize someone for their contributions like that's we need
0: to get. Yeah, th- we to need to me. That sounds like
1: the, 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 the colonialism is baked into this and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be. And I'm an outsider. I, I, I don't write or contribute to scientific papers. That's what it sounds like to me from an outsider perspective.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I, can, I can only agree. I mean, I, I can say for my own part with the colleagues that we, that we work with very closely are fantastic. And we have amazing, I have amazing Malagasy uh, colleagues. So Andu Rako and, and Fanu um, um, Ratzuavina are, they both did their PhDs with Miguel Vences here in Germany the, you know Miguel has been running a program for a really long time, building capacity for herpetology research in Madagascar um, and has been involved with the training of, of, of many scientists who are now at the top of, of Malagasy herpetology. I don't know what the situation in paleontology is, but in that, in that case, it's also, you know, it's about supporting those researchers, giving
2: that's them what I mean. access that's to, what... the, to the resources. Yeah. And yeah, everything. that's what I think that's... it needs to be done. That's yeah, Gabriel, I
1: th- I think I I think I'm in agreement with you here that it sounds like it's not enough to just it that th- there needs to be more there. There needs to be yeah, there
2: needs to be support yeah. towards you know the local researchers.
1: We're not and we're not I and and Mark I should say too. This sounds like we're coming at you, and it's not. It's just no this is this is a, a bigger problem than that. I'm,
0: I'm happy to acknowledge that this is a problem that I have also interfaced with, and as you can, I think, tell from the way that I talk about it, it's not something that is super easy for me because it is something that I'm, it's a, a bias and a, a problem that I'm very conscious of. And it's not easy to navigate the question of having a name on the list for a diversity quota versus actually being committed to being to supporting and being involved with these researchers, and um, I, I, you know, for my own peace of mind, I have done um, I put a lot of effort into supporting students um, and, and working with colleagues in Madagascar, and that's something that we are very conscious of. In this paper, I didn't expect this, the conversation to go in this direction, but I just checked in the acknowledgements. They also haven't acknowledged any Malagasy people. I suspect that, so they, the specimen that has been examined was collected in 19, between 1927 and 1930. I suspect that they decided to analyze this fossil without ever speaking with a Malagasy person. Yeah. Um, I, so the, I can't and, and the, speak to the authors. I don't know any of these people personally. Um, but based on the time frame. Based on the time frame, based on the authorship, based on the acknowledgments. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's not exactly a great look.
2: No. And where was the, where is the specimen house? Did they say where the specimen is house? Uh,
0: yes. It is at the. I think it's at the American. Yeah, it's at the American Museum of Natural History.
2: Okay, so that explains yeah. Why. yeah. But,
0: all, I mean, the also the the curator for herpetology at the American Museum of Natural History, which is uh, Chris Raxworthy, is not an author on this paper. And Chris has worked very closely with Malagasy people, too. So, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, this is who, a who serious am- problem. I mean, I
1: did not think we were going to go down that road either, but, you know. <laughs>
2: Well but if it if you know, it's a problem and, and people yeah. have to you know, this is this is not something that can keep happening. And and all to be honest, it's something that we see a lot in paleontology. And recently I've been hearing about this from paleontologists saying, Oh, this paper has these problems and this other paper had these problems and we keep seeing the same pattern and that it cannot happen.
0: I think it's easy so so going back to what Herald mentioned about the the gecko fluorescence paper. Um <laughs> because the, the gecko fluorescence paper was um, a little bit of a, a crazy project that was um, started by, by my colleague David um, while we were doing our PhDs. And he had these geckos in captivity at home. And so, you know, yeah. during the entire project, neither of us... Well, I have never been to Namibia. <laughs> um, and David... <laughs> I, I think um, I think David visited Namibia at some point, many many years ago. But for us, it was the excitement of discovering this thing and then getting it finished. And it, at no point did I actually think to myself, "Oh, these are actually there." We should be talking with Namibian scientists about this stuff because, it, in many ways, it was like working with a zebrafish in a box. We were entirely separated from the ecological system there has been a lot of, of thoughts about you know doing ecological research in madagascar and then in, in namibia sorry and taking this further and working then in collaboration with with namibian scientists but for the actual discovery of that of that thing um, it, it was totally separated and i can understand having been through that i can understand how people working on fossils uh, often can think to themselves, "Okay, I'm working in this box. Of, you know, this is this is a fossil that was collected a long time ago. I have it at my disposal, and therefore I can work on this freely." That's obviously not the case. And and um, you know, thinking about that, that's actually uh, a problem that I had not been conscious of. But
2: um, well, but not. I think that's also part yeah. of why bringing this to light makes you aware of things. And once you're aware of things, you are not allowed to repeat them again without, you know, being, uh, how am I trying to say this? If once you know, you know, uh,
1: somewhat complicit, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Once you know, something is problematic, you, you might have done something that was not,
0: um, yeah. The important thing is to learn from your mistakes and, and <laughs> be conscious you. <laughs> of your biases and your and your errors and and try not to repeat them. Um, and, you know,
3: yeah, so I, I think can it... tell you now that one of the biggest issues is funding not being channeled to the right places. And, and mm-hmm. funding is, I mean, a whole topic altogether. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's one of the biggest things, right? Like anybody can sort of um, you know, decide that they want to do an expedition and go collect samples um, but if you if if local people don't have funding to even do something like that, then they can't um, right. publish anything and in a in another scenario, they as local people probably have collected or observed something, but they they're not associated with an institute they don't have funding to now even think about publishing. Something of the sort, right. um, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, like Gabriel said, these are kind of topics that are important to just shed light on, um, so that you know people do start speaking about it, and something can at some point be done about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think it's this. It's very important that people avoid being parachuting scientists, uh, or you know that that neocolonialism is rife in, in modern research. Herpetology is no stranger to this. Paleontology, it has huge history and, and problems. And um, we just must try to overcome our our uh, forebears and do a better job of capacity building. Because that's, it's so important that we build the local researcher capacity. I. Uh, if I could work together with a huge community of Malagasy scientists, I would be so thrilled. The community right now is small and tight knit and and strong, but it's still small. And that's something that we need to, to work on overcoming and building and, and over time. I think that's something that's that's happening very well. So,
2: yeah well that discussion took a different turn of what we were (laughs) expecting
0: it did but the answer is uh apparently four robustus swam to madagascar where it was promptly whacked over the head by uh, (laughs) uh by local people although it apparently had a good 20 million year stint so there might be fossils of uh related species on madagascar who knows um still not clear when it actually made it to the island but it certainly went extinct very recently bring it back
2: <laughs> well it diverged from the thing in the illegal scene so from yeah. the other crocodilians yeah so
1: so and what, so when do we think it went extinct very recently uh, like these fossils are from ago. yeah within historical times
2: within yeah, historical 13, times 1300 years wow that's very that's like that's Medieval time. Yeah,
1: that's yeah. nothing.
0: Yeah. Okay, so Ethan, do you wanna do you wanna talk quickly about some of your herps?
1: Sure. Uh, so recently uh, I got some new snakes, which I am really excited about. Uh, I got a nice little western hog nose. And I was gonna say it's I would was not prepared for how difficult it is to find a standard issue hognose western hognose snake uh the morphs on those have been i guess they're the new ball python so
0: yeah really hard to find
1: to find uh uh, i mean they're it's crazy and we uh it was my son's 10th birthday last week and for his birthday i got him a children's python because Ah. i did not want to get another ball python i don't want a ball python they're boring to me so so we went with the children's python, and, uh, and he named him Monty, which is
0: great. So. Very great. <laughs> so for those who don't know, that's Antaresia childreni, right? The, yeah. 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 Um, the Antaresia are, are the smallest pythons in the world. You know, and, they, and
1: they're, what's really cool is that they're very small, but they, they look... Like little miniature, tiny. Uh, Absolutely, they remind me of a big python. So they're they're like they have almost in like every a, respect, yeah, yeah, almost like a retic uh, looking face.
0: And, uh, I kept Anserizia maculosa uh, for I think two years, and they were the least pleasant snakes I've ever <laughs> kept.
1: Well, this one is pretty friendly. Um, I will say it's it's uh, it's a little little bit quirky about being taken out of the enclosure but once you get him out he's very calm and and chill and uh and I think he's going to make a good pet. He's 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 adapted well and he doesn't seem to have any of the feeding issues that ball pythons tend to have. Not yes, a picky, they not a picky have eater, a strong at
0: all. feeding response. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, he took food almost immediately, so. Mm.
0: here all have you ever kept snakes?
3: No. Um, which yeah is is really interesting to a lot of people, especially because a, a lot of people that got interested in herpetology in Africa uh, kept snakes, or yeah. you know they they worked specifically with snakes. Um, but uh, yeah, I never never did, and now so I'm actually based at the reptile spen- center that I speak about later, and we've got the the house that I'm s- staying in. Um, has is kind of like a quarantine so i've got three snakes here one uh burmese python a bull python and an albino python mm-hmm. oh
0: that's nice um, fun so you get to be around the snakes without having to necessarily be like the primary care t- caretaker yes. yeah
3: yeah Clicks of the job <laughs> yeah.
0: that's the best way to do it
2: that's the best way to yes. do it it is
0: <laughs> not pretty great requ- not that they require a ton of Actual maintenance, really. Yes, I do part. find snakes to be some of the easiest animals to <laughs> keep. Yeah, yeah. So,
2: yeah, and give us our... a, a, an update on the goniadores, Ethan. How are you? Goniadores.
1: Uh, the female is now fully grown. The male has sort of been courting her, doing his little tail wiggle thing. Like That's a fuscus,
2: little... right?
0: Yeah.
1: It does like this. It Does like a little.
0: Yeah, they do these very jerky tail motions. Huh? Yeah, it's it's very interesting that the the jerky tail motion seems to be maintained across all geckos.
1: They love that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I was just doing it. You know. Obviously, you can't see it, but I was doing the the motion. Um, yeah, I think I'm hoping that I'll get some some uh, some eggs soon from them. The the uh, Vitatus that I have, I only see him about once a week or so. Um, He comes out of hiding and
2: really, yeah. Well, he's in a very,
1: he's in a really densely planted vivarium.
2: Oh, but they're usually very uh, outgoing and like, you know. um...
1: Yeah, I I mean he's he's pretty outgoing, but he just I don't see him a lot. I think he's off doing his own thing, and he only comes out every once in a while but he's happy in there he's you know doing well yeah, yeah. he awesome. re- he re- grew- he entirely re cuz when i he w- he lost his tail yeah, when nice he was shipped nice. to me yeah and uh it's completely regrown at this point so
0: that's nice yeah yeah
1: yeah um other than that i think uh just lots of oh my my uh, neurojurist crocodus started laying eggs i thought they were going to skip this year because they didn't seem like they were interested. It's really late, but they started laying eggs this year, and my Japanese fire bellies started laying eggs for the first time.
0: Mm, cool.
1: So nice. So you'll that.
0: have even more, even more amphibians in the in the box. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm excited about the the synops, because I well I made the call that you know like when we a couple years ago got my axolotl tattoo, and my plan was for every species that i have successfully bred in captivity i want to add to it so
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) i understand (laughs) i had such aspirations not with tattoos but with other things and uh (laughs) they they didn't work out (laughs) you had
1: uh what what was it the elephant trunk snakes for a while
0: yeah Acrocordus. they're fantastic
1: they were really those are really cool
0: really cool yeah, unfortunately, one of them drowned. Uh, it it got stuck in a um, a piece of wood while it was trying to shed, and it. Mm. I I don't exactly know what happened, but it couldn't get to the water surface. They have just, a re, they, oh, they have a
1: reputation for being. Uh, yeah. Not easy to care for. And, yeah, and, and it's funny because the people I know who have them, are all like, I don't know where that comes from because it was
0: very easy to care for until it had so that one actually had a had a six so so all of the ones in the pet trade have a relatively well-known illness um that is still not very well characterized so it has uh they have these lesions and the lesions can show up in various different places and sometimes they show up on the face and in the respiratory system what
1: what i have heard is that The people who have had success with the—I know—we're going off on a tangent again here—but the people who have had success with them uh, are the people who have had success with fish. Uh, Uh Like that, you're keeping, you're you're really, you're treating them almost like fish. You're, you're caring for water quality and.
0: uh, I that probably matters a lot. Um, In in our case, they were doing so that one the the one that was very sick. Died from from drowning. I think it had uh, just generally it was not other very issues, well because of yeah. those those, yeah. Um, those lesions that it had. The other one had the lesions. We treated them with the medication. I can't remember what it was, but the lesions went away. And then at some point it must have gotten out of the tank that it was in, and um, they are incapable of living outside of water, so it it died. Um, yeah. And I was not there at the time I, I had passed it on to, um, to someone else to take care of. So sadly, yeah, that's, yeah, I that mean, was, I've,
1: I had, the. Uh, uh, well, it's kind of like, cause I kept lungfish, I, I lungfish for a while and mm-hmm. I have compared notes with other people and also similar, they seem to succumb just very suddenly, like they'll be doing great. And then the next day done. And yeah. that's what happened. And, and, uh, I don't know what the you know it's the usual where we don't really know the whole story with these animals that we yeah have. there's
0: so much that we that we can still to learn about them yeah okay well I guess we should move on to the next segment which is where we have our delightful interview with her all so uh, here is that alrighty then let's get on with it.
4: Cool.
0: I want to keep that in, so let's just get started. Hello. Uh, <laughs> and and welcome to Hiral. Hiral, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Hello everyone, my name is Hirol Nike. Um, I am yeah, a hyptologist from South Africa and I'm very glad to be here on the show.
0: It's very exciting for us to have you here. Geralt. Um, where did you and I meet? Did we, we had met before the World Congress last year, right? I feel like- No,
3: we met at-
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Somehow I feel like I've known you for a very long time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, that might be because I, I did contact you for some of your data for some of the Madagascar species for the Lamprophids. Maybe my name is familiar
0: wow i don't remember that at all but it must have been a while ago (laughs) yeah (laughs) so um maybe tell us a little bit about your your history within herpetology how you got into it where you're from what your background is all that kind of stuff
3: sure how far back
0: do you want me to go as far back as you want to go um i so I have listened to the um, Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast episode, episode 10, in which you are on the panel talking about South African herpetologists. And first of all, the WE podcast is perhaps my favorite podcast. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah. But also, so I know already quite a bit about your sort of backstory, but the listeners unless they pause to go listen to that, which I would totally sympathize with. They don't know your backstory. So maybe tell us a little bit about where you came from and how you got into herpetology and and all that jazz.
3: Sure. Um, Cool. So I was born in Zimbabwe, a small town called Bulawayo. Um, And I lived there for about 10 years. Um, And that's pretty much where my love for wildlife and nature kind of started. Um, You know, I was a very, I was a very outdoorsy kid. Um, Loved playing outside, looking at little ants, um, you know, doing their thing, climbing mango trees in my back garden. Um, The dream.
2: (laughs) I was curious. So it's a common story for for a lot of people that like us that like reptiles and amphibians and animals in general.
0: I, I was wondering, so growing up in Zimbabwe, um, I, so I I had the great privilege and joy of visiting Zimbabwe when I was like five years old. And uh, because my, my grandparents were in Malawi at the time, and we went to visit my uncle who was living in Zimbabwe. And I remember seeing the scorpions under the rocks and having my cousins who were even younger than I was, like turning over rocks and being like, Scorpy, Daddy, (laughs) Scorpy. and So like, I guess growing up there, what was your experience of being surrounded by sort of, I guess what many people, at least those living in Europe would consider very exciting animals? (laughs) Did Did you have a lot of exposure to herbs?
3: Um, not that I can think of. I mean, you're common geckos and skinks that you see around the house. Um, and, I mean, that's certainly fascinating. Most people kind of look at them with curiosity, as did I. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you you aren't exposed to, you know, what a lot of people think, um, the mega porna, you know, roaming in your street. Right. Um Everything is you know very much in national parks um and it's only when you go visit these national parks and kind of nature reserves that you'll actually see uh the 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 wildlife mm-hmm. and I think one of the biggest things uh with growing up in Africa is that the big megafauna do take uh you know they they are the star of the show mm-hmm. um, of you don't know, and you don't really see um herbs much I mean besides your 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 small lizards.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um but I will say that we used to go to a place called Matobo Hills and mm-hmm. there there's a rainbow skink that occurs there. And I think that you know it, it, when I when I think back to the the little things that sparked my interest in in reptiles, I think that that was definitely one of them because you know it's so Matobo Hills are, are just um kind of these round boulders all placed together mm. um, and, and you have these little rainbow lizards kind of everywhere. So it, it's something that you become fascinated by very quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Chasing very shiny lizards over rocks, I think is, for, for a young child, it's anyway fascinating. I think for, for, for the general, you know, even people who don't go into herpetology later on, it's just exciting to follow these, these tiny, shiny lizards but then being the later on, I guess that sort of affects you and and primes you for like continuing to do that sort of professionally, right? Yeah. Did you ever encounter um, chameleons in the, in the garden or around?
3: Not that I can think of. Mm. And I think chameleons are also very um, specific to certain habitats. I mean, you know, one of the most common ones we do find in, in South Africa and in Zimbabwe as your flat-neck chameleon. Um, if you want to see some of your more um, you know, charismatic species, you'll go where it's a bit more tropical. Yeah, you have to go really into the forest. Tropical. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool. So you moved, uh, you're growing up in, in Zimbabwe, and then eventually you moved to South Africa, right? Or you lived in, in India first?
3: Yes, so after um, I left Zimbabwe, I moved to India Um, for the simple reason that both my parents were born in India, Um, so they had family there, and that was kind of the natural progression. Um, We lived there for about two years. Um, Again, you know, it was great uh, living with wildlife. Uh, My family had a little farm, and, you know, a typical Indian farm is very much trees and Um, fruit trees and all sorts of um, you know variations of plants and shrubs um, unless you're farming something like rice or Mm -hmm. or that sort of thing right
4: Um,
3: so again you know it was great uh, to be in in uh, the farm uh, making little houses from whatever was left behind so trees the leaves um, broken down tables and Honestly, whatever we could find, um, and, and made, it was like, a, a completely
2: cap, uh, different uh, type of, and it was a completely different type of fauna from what you saw in Zimbabwe. So that must have been exciting, right?
3: Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I, I can't, I can't specifically remember uh, much of the wildlife in terms of the animals that we saw in, in India. Um, again, I was 11, 12, uh, so it's quite far back to remember. But there's just specific memories that do pop up, you know, um, monkeys living pretty much everywhere. Um, Mm. And uh, honestly, I think I had a a huge culture shock uh, when I went to go live there. So I had, um, I had been to India, I think about two years before to travel, to visit my uh, uncle who was getting married. Um, And, you know, it was even even then, it was just very different. Uh, but when I moved there, now it was, you know, trying to adjust and adapt to a yeah. completely different lifestyle.
4: Yeah.
3: Uh, the schooling system was very different. You Gross. start, you know, you start school at uh, 10 o'clock um, and then you finish at five. You don't really do sports or extracurricular activities, hmm. which was very really different for me because in Zim, I was also very athletic. So, you know, I would be, Uh, playing hockey or tennis after school, doing swimming or some sort of activity. Um, And yeah, it was quite a big change. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Um, While I was there, though, um, you know, I I naturally always had this uh, desire to kind of travel and explore. And there was a, a, a school trip that we took or that was available rather when I was in school. And so we, we travelled for I think about ten days, um, just a you know a bus full of kids travelling through different parts of uh, India, and you know uh, I would say that you know growing up in an Indian family where you are always you know like you you need to go with somebody, going off alone isn't really something a lot of people approve of. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm very lucky that my parents are very liberal um, and open-minded mm. so they've always kind of allowed me to do what I've wanted to do and that was the first time I got to see different parts of India as well um, you know look at, observing different habitats yeah. um, being in the mountains um, which was great I think it, it played a huge role in me both wanting to travel and explore the outdoors even further
0: yeah yeah i mean it's such a that that age of childhood is such a transitionary period as well right like uh, that's around the same age that i moved from the us to switzerland and has also a huge culture shock but i I can't imagine it's the same kind of culture shock as you would have experienced going from zimbabwe to to india And then you guys moved to South Africa, right?
3: Yes. Um, So my uncle, my dad's brother, um, was studying in South Africa. So he kind of convinced us to move here, which was so it was better for my sister and I in terms of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, We weren't really made to, you know, grow up in India. Let's just say um, let's just say that. And, and uh, again, so I think I felt a lot more like home um, Mm. in South Africa, but I did move to Johannesburg, which is quite a big city. So this was very different again, because in Zimbabwe, I was in a small town, um, not, not really big. Um, And in India, like, I mean, it's just very different in terms of small city life. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I went from kind of a manageable manageable amount of people to uh, a a huge amount of people. And then to kind of a weird transition of like a lot of people, but in very isolated blocks. Um, Mm. So... You know in a huge city it's very difficult to kind of get to know people there's no yeah. there isn't a huge community vibe if you don't know people and yeah. because because South Africa is you know uh very much crime driven every every everything is either behind four walls um or in like cluster type housing settings yeah so unless you live in a What we call a complex of small houses um you don't really get to know your neighbor um and i think that was another big adjustment uh for both my family and i
0: Mm -hmm. it also means you're sort of taken away from the proximity of nature right did that affect your feeling going through high school and things were you like keen to get out again and 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 you know, get experience again being in the field, or
3: yeah. So um, I think I was also lucky to have made friends that with with um, with people that had previously, you know, gone camping or were very well versed with the the natural world. Uh, let's mm-hmm. just say, um, and I think. You know, it, it is, I think most people will tell you that, you know, that period during like late primary school and high school, you're very much focused on your education, right? You, you have to do your normal schoolwork, um, your sporting activity, or whatever else it is. Um, but it's only if you have or come from a family or have those kind of friends where you will go and explore um, you know the nature reserves and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So unfortunately I didn't have that as from a family perspective. Um, but I did have several opportunities to go with friends um, camping um, to different parts of the country, which I was lucky to do. Um, and I think I was lucky to have retained that. but I, I think at some point, that had changed my perspective on, on what I wanted as a career, what I wanted mm-hmm. to do as a job. So um, what, what,
0: had, what, what had it been beforehand and what, what did it change to?
3: Um, you know, when I was younger, I think one of, the biggest, one of the biggest things that did impact me was when I was four years old, my parents had given me this world atlas Um, It was a sticker atlas, it's very simple, Um, but, you know, honestly, I still have this book with me, (laughs) because it had such a a big impact on me, Um, and when I, you know, when I went through that book, I always knew that I wanted to go around the world, and explore different places, Um, not necessarily strictly cultural based, or, you know, your seven wonders of the world, Um, I just knew that I wanted to see different places, Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd always wanted a career that would have allowed me to do that. Um, so when I was in high school um, I also became very fascinated by, um, by geography uh, naturally. Um, I did take subjects like science and, and biology um, and so I, I naturally you know had this inclination towards, Learning more about the natural world.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I also had friends that wanted to become a zoologist, so so I kind of had an an idea about what a zoologist was. Um, not that I think I saw myself going into that field. Um, mm-hmm. And if you will have heard um, me on on the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast, um, I mentioned the fact that you know coming from an Indian family, you don't look for careers um that you know are not long term that are not going to pay you that are um where you don't see yourself settling down eventually buying a a house or a car Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and and it it is it comes very naturally to a lot of and i mean it's it's not strictly coming from an indian family right i think it's 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 something very common um, from that, that previous generation.
4: Yeah, yeah.
3: And, and so I, yeah, I had never thought about, you know, being a zoologist. Mm-hmm. um and so what? why are you
2: talking about with all these millionaire <laughs> zoologists that are around
0: <laughs> it is a, a non-stop cash shop i mean you know uh... that's why
2: I, that's why i always laugh when this oh, this uh, climate deniers say that scientists are doing it for the money what money where
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i was always told as a kid like do you know do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life but also you have to choose between doing a job you like and having money. (laughs) So it was very much on my mind. It was like, I'm going to live a little bit like a pauper, but I'll get to do the things that I really enjoy. And, um, you know, I I obviously can't complain being in Germany and having, you know, financial stability and whatnot, but, you know, in in many ways it is a choice because friends of mine who were in the same class and who decided to go into pharma or whatever are are raking in millions a year. And I'm (laughs) like, well, (laughs) that's definitely not on my my horizon, but yeah.
4: Yeah.
0: So you didn't, was there a point where you realized that you were particularly interested in herps or are I want to I want to ask like are you a a deep down herpetologist or do you actually love all the animals and you just happen to work in herpetology which is both (laughs) there's no bad answer here I just want to make it clear this is no judgment at all
3: (laughs) (laughs) okay let me get to it um I think there are several things that kind of happened along the way so I mean I think for me science was a huge part of Growing up, either way, um, I think also another big thing. So books, books were always presented to us um, as kids, and I think that has a huge impact on the way you are educated about everything. Uh, whether it's uh, especially an encyclopedia because it covers everything from astronomy to the human body um, to dinosaurs and um, and everything else, and little things from those books I think make and have an impact on you um, so even if you know I had not necessarily been interested in dinosaurs as like a career um, I remember uh, when I was I think 10 years old there was a, a Disney movie called dinosaur um, I don't think it's very popular oh, okay you guys both know it yes. no I know I
2: remember very well that it, it, it is uh, it's um, look-wise, it's very problematic, but a lot of people do have fond memories from the movie.
0: I personally yeah. have never seen it. I only watched *The Land Before Time*, which, you know, was my exposure to dinosaurs and paleontology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: And um, so, I mean, I didn't have scientific parents. So, if I had any questions, I, I didn't really have anybody to go to. I do remember, um, you know, sitting on the lawn or lying down on the lawn and looking up at the sky, thinking about why the sky was blue. Um, and these are all questions that finally got answered when I took science in in high school. Um, I think with some level of disappointment, um, <laughs> you know, I want to say it was, you know, um, I expected some really cool answer about how, you know, there was bunch of really cool experiments that happened. Technically, it is. Like, you know, chemicals, how light playing around, and, and voila, you've got your blue sky. Um, but but it, it still had, you know, it was still very interesting. Um, but in my early high school, I, I was very interested in uh, learning things about clouds. Um, and, you know, geography did become quite a, a big part of my high school career. And when I was thinking about what kind of careers I could pursue, I did actually think about becoming a climatologist. Um, And that's kind of where I went after high school, because I thought, okay, you know, climatology is kind of a career where you could make some money um, but still be outdoors. Somewhat. Um, If I'm being completely honest, if there was a, if there was a job where you'd go chasing, you know, hurricanes and all sorts of exciting things like that, like I always wanted to go see a volcano or be experience an earthquake or, you know, like I always had this inclination to do something, to be in a dangerous situation. Let's put it that way. Um, no idea why, I, will and I don't become know. Become relevant until later in the from. story, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> um, and I think you know, playing with danger has its own kind of um, excitement mm-hmm. uh, to it, right? You get that adrenaline rush. But it 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 didn't really, you know. Honestly, also coming from a family perspective, which I've only recently started to realize, is that you are taught to be very calm coming from an indian family if you're a woman you are meant to be very timid you're supposed to follow the rules you're not supposed to speak out of line Um, and i went against all of these i remember my grandmother um, telling my mom like oh look at how you're raising this child you know (laughs) um but you know i think the The key is to stay true to who you are, because eventually at some point it's going to come out, and you're going to need to channel it in a in a healthy way and when i so when I got to university um I took geography as a major and I also majored in ecology um i had I had honestly played around with the idea of uh doing geology um, but I think it worked out. Better that I you know did ecology and geography, and the combination of the two I would say has allowed me to think about um, systems and ecology and the world in a in a much deeper capacity than
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, someone who had just specialized in in one field and yes. i and I can say this because um, some of my friends that just majored in two. Like zoology and ecology, you you just uh, you were just exposed to concepts of you know specific animal animal taxonomic groups, um, evolution, but but it became very specific. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in geography, I was exposed to things like um, understanding how climate and policy uh, play a role in the way that we make decisions. Mm. Um, how geography from um, an ecological perspective plays a role from a human perspective mm-hmm. and so many of these things um, have honestly been the most beneficial to me now when i'm I'm thinking about um, you know creating ideas and concepts mm. to to work um, in my career at the moment so you know I, I think at um you know in in my second year um we did a marine and coastal ecology uh, field trip
4: mm-hmm.
3: which was led um, by my supervisor um now so it was it was really interesting because my so my supervisor now he's yeah been around at bit at my university for a long time and he gave us our first lecture on uh, herbs in in my first year of of ecology, um, and I remember then thinking, "Wow, like it's so cool! I just want to keep learning about that." But even then, you know, I I never had that um, that courage, I would say, to think about pursuing a, cal- a career in herpetology.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then I, you know, from then on, I did a couple of different. Uh, courses, uh, field courses in in ecology, and learnt about the different animals that live in our um, environment. Um, and you know, we would we would go looking for things like snakes and frogs. Um, and it was it was fascinating. I think that's when I I had a real feel for moving into something where I could interact with animals as a career. Um, and from from there on, I th- for my honours, I decided that I was going to go the ecology route um, mm-hmm. rather than the geography route. Um, and by that point, I think my geography kind of had, uh, I guess my interest had changed, especially on the climate side, it sounds really interesting, um, crazy now but you know honestly it it was the math and the physics um that make it so dense and then you know as a climatologist really you're spending your time behind a computer doing modeling and that sort of thing um so so that's when you really get an idea of okay this is completely different to what i had expected and Mm -hmm. wanted to
0: do yeah storm chasing Um, is not on the the typical (laughs) climatologists uh, manifesto
3: (laughs) (laughs) And um, I remember, um, again, coming back to uh, my supervisor, and he taught a course on biogeography. And um, honestly, I think this was also one of the biggest, uh, this had the biggest impact on my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Because now I'm learning about, uh, you know, concepts that I've never even heard of. Thinking about the way things were and how they have become. Mm -hmm. Um, The way species have changed evolved Mm -hmm. into a completely different environment.
0: Um,
3: I mean, I think the stuff completely blew my mind.
0: I also find that biogeography was something that, you know, when I did my, my bachelor's, I did a bachelor's in zoology and it was really strictly zoology and evolutionary biology, basically. And the concept of biogeography was, was missing to such an extent that now I've had to teach myself all of these biogeographic concepts and things, mm-hmm. and some, some of it I, I didn't really realize until reading um, uh, uh, the book, the biography of um, Alexander von Humboldt, who okay. had, you know, constructed these incredible comparisons across all of the world's mountains and things, or or many of the world's mountains in order to sort of compare biogeographic uh, composition and how these consistent laws across different environments. And some of that stuff, I really resent having missed out on from having gone too much into the animals, like you were saying, it's such an important concept when we're trying to understand, especially evolution of organisms. Gabriel, I can imagine that also from from paleontological point of view, if you don't understand the biogeography of the organisms.
2: Yeah, get... but but I, I was thinking um, when you guys were discussing that, that I am a big fan of biogeography. And I think it's in, 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 in amazingly important, but I think um, not so much recently, but I, I remember about a decade ago, it's, it's not on the main, um, like a lot of herpetologists are sometimes ignorant on the subject. There are a lot of papers that would benefit from a better understanding of biogeography. And a lot of times it's either overlooked or, or you know, taken very lightly. And it used to drive me crazy. And I think it's become, it's less apparent now, but it used to be the case around 10 years ago. And it was like, ah, and it, goes, I, 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 it drives me crazy when people don't understand, understand how environments are distributed and then uh, human frontiers are taken into consideration without taking into cons- you know, not understanding what uh, what a real environment how how is distributed and how it was distributed in the past, mm-hmm. you know, and like in the late Pleistocene, for example, the the how forests were expanded and then they retrieve and Corrected, then all yeah. the forest refugia and all that, and and so you know a lot of, uh, I think. I think it's a much better place now, but it it, it yes what you said mark is true there, there it, it should be more and more prevalent, mm-hmm. and I think that's why you know this discussion is so important
3: yeah, and I think um you know we it, ten years ago things were very were very different what we were allowed to do or think about doing as a career option um, mm-hmm. in terms of mentorship in terms of That, that ability to have someone or something to go to to, to understand that you can be yourself and pursue a career that's going to make you happy, that didn't exist. Um, Mm -hmm. And I have to be honest, you know, I, uh, growing up, I wasn't really the academic, um, academically inclined. Um, My sister got the good grades. She was um, she was the star buff of the family which again made me kind of the black sheep, right? And, and I think it, it channeled through into university. I think when I was learning about these courses, I was, I was very fascinated um, from like, a, like an activity, like a doing point of view, but the, but the theoretical side was always quite challenging, right? Like honestly, writing exams is, is not for everyone. And I, I yes. think- This has a lot to do with how I feel about doing education now. Um, I think you know we a lot of a lot of us that are actually in the academic world now didn't necessarily have the means to explore different learning styles. Mm -hmm. Um, We just kind of had to do right. Mm -hmm. You just read your book, read your notes, and wrote that exam. You either you know you either passed or you kind of did really well, and a mix between the two. Um, and I think what's important that I learned coming out of it was how I retained that knowledge. Because honestly, I can tell you now that there are concepts that I learned in my well, like second year evolution class, and I can specifically remember sitting in that evolution class, um, that you know i can remember but you know my my friends that were in the same class don't necessarily remember because they're better at kind of the the book reading book learning mm-hmm. method of of education
4: mm-hmm.
3: and yeah so i think um it 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 there were a lot of different things along the way that had sparked my interest in learning more about about reptiles um and again, it was still it was still about pursuing a career that was going to give me a job and I think when you're also you know growing up in South Africa there's a lot of pressure to get a job that pays after you finish um university after you finish your honors um, you know it's not you, you're not likely to pursue a master's or a PhD, and so I never honestly thought that I would be doing a PhD one day, because um, it it never it it was never appealing to me in the way that it was portrayed. Let mm-hmm. me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had teaching assistants that would tell us about those cool research that they were doing, but you know, honestly, from the herb side, it was never something that i felt like oh okay like i could do this and then still get a job one day Mm -hmm. um and at some point i think i just kind of let that go i think so for my for my honors i i did want to work with reptiles but then opted for a project that was supposed to be on climate change and and the striped mice long story short did not end up doing that project and did something on (laughs) completely different um and then you know then for my then when i decided i wanted to do a a masters um then i knew i wanted to work with reptiles Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but even then so that's
0: sorry did, did you know that or was it clear by that time that you already wanted to to do herbs even when you were dancing around with the, the idea of doing these striped mice things um,
3: yes yeah. so I um, even so I did a, a course in my honors during my honors um, on gosh I can't remember but it was something to do with physiology and um, mm. and obviously my supervisor now taught the course and we learned we we You know, in in our honors degree, we use the method of like each student finding a paper, and then reading through the paper, discussing what they found right, what they found wrong, Um, and yeah, um, obviously it was very herb focused, and that was I think the point where uh, I I knew okay, like you know I I do I want to do more research on on herbs because. They're just fascinating, um, and something I, so something I didn't mention is that I also didn't. I was still also Zimbabwean at the time, and so it was going to be very difficult to find a job, anyways. And that's also kind of where the pressure to get a job came from, because otherwise I was going to be stuck in this research academic world, and you know everyone knows you don't really get paid well in academia so yeah i i there were there were a lot of things playing around in my head
4: mm-hmm.
3: and when I decided to do a master's in in uh herbs or or with with snakes specifically um my family so my parents kind of were okay with it um but but my uncle and my aunt um who were in South Africa, and you know we were kind of here almost because of them, Mm. they, and so my uncle is an engineer and my aunt's uh, a chartered accountant. They were both Mm. working in in these big companies in South Africa. So, so it was kind of like this notion where, okay, they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you, you listen to, to what they're saying and they kind of, they were really the ones that said, okay, no, this isn't really the right route to go. You're gonna st- be stuck working with snakes, and and then what? You know, there's oh, the no worst. there's no career, right? <laughs> and and you kind of you know behind you know not to their face, but you know it's like, but I just want to work with snakes. Like, let me work mm-hmm. with snakes.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but it's also <laughs> That's coming when you from know people that you have the passion, right?
2: But it probably also it, it probably also comes from people that I always think when people are not really connected to nature sometimes it's difficult for them to understand those things Mm -hmm.
3: yeah very much so um and i and i think um as much as a lot of people um and i and i think it's not it's not uh specific to any um racial group or specific part of the world i think for generations now we've had that pressure to um you know get to be in a career where you you can have that that family life and something stable so when you eventually become a pensioner you don't have to depend on anybody else
4: mm-hmm.
3: and that it's it's such it's such a negative um and like it's yeah it's it's a negative mindset because it limits yeah i think the the word is it it's a very limiting mindset because now it stops you from exploring different options. And sure, you might, like like my family, you know, we we would go uh, to different nature reserves. We'd go um, on safaris and and sorts of things where you are exposed to wildlife. So you are interested in it. And I think we're very lucky in in Africa where we can honestly go an hour away and you can be in, in the bush.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not it's not something for a lot of people that can be translated into a way that is going to put food on the table mm. um, so it took it took I think a lot of hard work on my side um, to stick to my to stick to my gut and say okay no I do want to work with Um, with snakes Mm -hmm. Um, and I I honestly didn't really have a project in mind when I was doing my master's Um, and so when I spoke to my supervisor um, he had this cool idea about looking at diet and um, evolution in a family called the lamprophids and I'm sure you want me to talk a little bit more about that research. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. So, I mean, you, you finally had the, or you just had the results from that published, right? Um, yes. Published in the Journal of Herpetology in, when was it? February?
3: January. January? January,
0: yeah. Yeah, so the, the paper is, is titled Ancestral Reconstruction of Diet and Fang Condition in the Lamprophidae, Implications for the Evolution of Venom Systems in Snakes. So your supervisor is, um, is, is Graham? Yes. Graham Alexander. And so, so you, you got onto this project that he, he was tossing around and decided to look at, I don't know, some of the most interesting snakes in the world, which is really cool. <laughs> well, but, but I was going to say
2: coming from somebody that, you know, works and deals with neotropical herpetology mostly explain to us Hiral, what land profits are like give us like a like a like an idea what land profits are because i'm not super familiar with
0: you can tell us what land profits were and what they are now (laughs) as a result of nomenclatural changes yes
3: oh the joys um (laughs) okay so so land profits uh which i obviously didn't know at the time like the intricacies of it really but I knew them as most of the non-venomous snakes that we have in in Africa. So things like your house snakes, your sort of sand snakes, a lot of the non-venomous or traditionally non-venomous snakes. Um, and for for the listeners, um, you know, house snakes are uh, as they the name suggests house snakes <laughs> that are around <laughs> um, almost on a regular basis. Um, and people, people will often find these snakes and believe that they're, you know, dangerous. Um, and it, it goes for the for most of the other uh, lamprofids. Um And you know, it, it, it's quite interesting that you know, coming from someone that wasn't necessarily well versed with the the tech- Taxonomy, um, especially from the, the herpetological side, um, I just thought, okay, these these were just cool animals that uh, cool snakes, a snake group that was has honestly been neglected for a really long time. Um, they're they're pretty difficult to find, um, or for the most part, you find a couple of species quite regularly. Um, but I I think that played a huge role in why nobody's really spent a lot of
0: time
3: investigating them. Mhm. I mean, as a
0: group, it's it's worth mentioning that Lamprophids were formally within the Colubridae, which is at the time was basically exclusively based on morphology and was a waste bin taxon. Yes. And it and, was the thing
2: that it was distributed worldwide and it was Yes. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> there were things called Colubr in I think three different continents. Um, and and now of course the lamprophids are split off, and it turns out evolutionarily um, that the lamprophids are, well. The the nomenclature is in a state of flux right now. So we are talking about lamprophids in the broad sense, sense latu, because, the, formerly lamprophids were divided into a series of subfamilies, which included the. Uh, Samophinae, the, um, the the from Madagascar, but also you had the atractaspins, so the the they're the stiletto snakes, right?
4: Stiletto snakes, yeah. yeah,
0: which are crazy. And and all of these different groups, which are now in the very latest version of the taxonomy, um, are now treated as separate families. So they were all elevated up one level for reasons that I don't fully understand, but whatever. Um, people are trying to make consistencies across the across the tree, which is not so easy. Um, but in any case, what we're talking about right now is the broad sense Lamprophids, which includes those different subgroups, right? And they are. Yeah. As a a group, very diverse. I am very familiar with the Malagasy species, which are in the Pseudoxyrophidae now, but formerly in the Pseudoxyrophidae of the Lamprophidae. (laughs) And yeah, they vary from extremely common snakes that you see most days to extremely rare species that are only known from single individuals. And within Madagascar, the Pseudoxyrophids occupy a huge range of different niches. But that... At least from my perspective, which is slightly biased, um, potentially reflects this sort of island radiation that we have in the Pseudoxyrophids in comparison to what I suppose are largely conserved species within the other subfamilies of the Lamprophidae, right? I mean, the Samophines are moderately samey, right? Um, of course, yeah. there's big differences between the different subfamilies. Like the stiletto snakes are extremely divergent, especially in terms of their dentition, from yeah. all of the other snakes, but uh, yeah. or from all of the other Lamprofits rather. But the uh, within the group, the I think the pseudorophids are the most diverse, right?
3: Yeah, and it's it's so uh, I would say it it was a huge challenge to get. Um, data on the diet, as one can imagine. I, I think for most snakes around the world, we don't really have good data on diet for snakes. Right. Um, unless you cut up museum specimens, um, which I didn't end up doing, um, you, you don't necessarily get that accurate um, data. And honestly, mm-hmm. with, with uh, so many lamprophids they're, they're really small, like I mentioned, they're um, difficult to find. So you're not going to find them in museum specimens anyways Mm. um so it's all based on yeah um literature whatever literature is available um a lot of field guides and a lot of things a lot of observations that were found by people like 40 years ago 30 Mm -hmm. 40 years ago
4: Mm
3: -hmm. um and especially with the madagascar snakes honestly i relied a lot on um marks um, lovely blog um, to get some data um, and yeah, it, it was a challenge um, but I, I think there's probably additional um, observations that I, you know I obviously couldn't complete at the time yeah. um, a lot of uh, because I, I know a lot of research on the snakes in Madagascar has honestly been done after I finished my master's. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, to have incorporated that into the data set, I think would have been really interesting too.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the Malagasy snakes are actually gonna be worthy of their, of their own investigations. And, and um, I, I think they there'll be an interesting perspective. But so one of the key questions that you were trying to answer was basically, were these species ancestrally venomous, right? And, and did they ancestrally have fangs? And what were the fangs at the front or the back?
3: Back fanged. Um, yeah. So, yes, that was a very interesting um, conclusion that we came to um, because, you know, considering that traditionally most of these species are supposed to be fangless,
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, uh, yeah, we didn't expect that the ancestral Condition was going to be back fanged.
0: rear fanged. Yeah, um, yeah,
3: yeah.
0: And, and so, I guess the the question is, what do you think? So those species that are rear fanged, I guess they should be having other kinds of morphological correlates with being rear fanged, right? Because you're you're not typically using back fangs in order to defend yourself per se mm. unless you're a boomslang
3: no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and even then it only works a day later so
2: it's
3: <laughs> well yeah I,
2: there are a lot of uh rear fang snakes that are you know very uh venomous yes yeah, very um, dangerous yeah but but uh, but my question for you here Alice, i would like so this the the ancestral form of lemper were, was rear-fanged, right? So why was a, what were the evolutionary pressures you think that, you know, that made this huge radiation of snakes, um, you know, lose some of that.
3: So, I mean, um, that's why the, the big focus was on diet. Um, so for, I mean, most of your hip listeners should know that um the primary reason why snakes have venom or have evolved venom is to immobilize prey um, and you know eat that prey and that's why this paper or, or this research it, itself was just so interesting because it it um, it proved exactly that it proved exactly the fact that you know there's this variation in diet is what is actually causing um, this then this you know morpho- morphologically diverse um, dentition in these different snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there' there's specific groups um, in the paper that you'll see that you know completely stand out in, in terms of that. Um, and you know just to pick out a few, uh, I'll tell you for one, um, the mole snakes. Um, it's Sudaspis carna. Um, it is a really interesting snake because again it's it's not venomous, but they've got these teeth that um are basically you know that they, they call, cause a lot of lacerations. Um and that can only really be for diet um their their diet on things like moles, um and the fossorial lifestyle that it mm-hmm. it, it has. Mm. And so It it became very obvious um, that what has happened within the family is these independent evolutions of having rare fangs or Mm -hmm. losing the ability to have any kind of fangs.
0: Yeah. Based Mm -hmm. on diet, yeah. Is there is there a dietary explanation for what happened to the stiletto snakes?
3: Um, Because
0: they are exceptional right? Well, let, are, let's explain. For, for again those who to, don't know. Yes. snakes are the only snakes that can envenomate you without opening their mouths. They are extremely uh, dangerous to pick up and extremely fast. They, they fit, strike
2: yeah. at a ridiculously fast. Yes, that's mm.
0: true. They, so they like uncoil and, and strike and then okay. coil back up again. Right. Um, but they are most famous for the fact that you cannot use the typical, or I don't know most famous, but they're well known for the fact that you cannot use the typical snake grip where you put one finger on top of the head and two fingers around the jaws um, because you'll still get envenomated. And it is not fun.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: So, but uh, yeah, th- th- that's a group that I've always found fascinating because that doesn't look like a dietary adaptation, right? That must just be de- defensive.
3: Uh, no, it's actually their lifestyle. So they're <laughs> fossorial. Um so well it, it's a combination. Um, they do have quite a generalistic diet, so um, they are basically these you know these snakes that do come out after some good rains when the soil is a bit wet um, that's often when people will encounter them hmm. but because they spend much of their lifestyle underground, they've obviously had to adapt um, to both having a being able to utilize. Um, or take advantage of whatever prey is available Um, and yeah utilizing the this the specific dentition um and if you know if i'm being completely honest i think there's still a lot more that could be done with that group Mm -hmm. because let's be honest i think we still know very very little about what's really going on yeah um you know uh, my colleagues and i often joke that, you know, if we could have an endoscope that could just stick in burrows (laughs) everywhere. um, We we'd learn so much more about, yeah, snakes like this.
0: Yeah, I thought about that often because, uh, you know, we were also, uh, I've studied a few of the different typhlops on Madagascar and being able to find out what the typhlops are up to would be super interesting. And we just have no idea for the most part. We mostly see them when it's raining and they come out of the soil.
4: Yeah.
0: So it's a very cool paper. It's available through your through your website, and readers can go and, and have a look at it and um, and read up. It's it's I, I'm really curious to start to see these kinds of things at a an even bigger perspective and, and understanding. You know, because there's so much conversion evolution as well that's going on here. I mean, the the snail eating snakes we haven't talked about at all, but they are also super fascinating and. You know, the different groups of snail eating snakes across the world that have converged on the same kind of jaw mechanisms are just bizarre. And so, I mean, very interesting work and definitely worth checking out. Um, How about you tell us what you're up to now? So this is basically, this is fresh, but it's not exactly what you're working on anymore, right?
3: Yeah. Uh, So that was from my master's work, which I finished in 2017, so that just goes to show you about how the peer review system works, <laughs> and how it took, you know, almost three years to publish. Oh um,
0: yes, goodness.
3: <laughs> um, so I mean, long story short, um, there weren't. I, I knew I didn't really want to go into a PhD straight after, for the simple reason that I didn't really want to get up in caught up in in a lot of the academic uh, pressures. So I you know, changed things up a little bit um, to like, you know, because I was also still Zimbabwean, um, had a year of just like volunteering, working with different organizations that were working on various different animals. Um, and then I, I came across this uh, organization called Save the Snakes. Um, it's American-based and they needed a volunteer uh, to work on their social media. Um, And so I contacted them. This was obviously a volunteer opportunity, but I took it because it was the the best thing I could get that was closest to working with uh, reptiles. Um, And then while so that was about three years ago, almost two years ago, 2018, um, in the interim, I ended up actually getting a job at BirdLife South Africa, Mm. so a lot of you, for a lot of the listeners, um, BirdLife South Africa is a kind of a branch of BirdLife International, and they do some really great conservation work. Um, so for for me, being a part of an organization like that honestly taught me a lot in terms of the application of a lot of science. Um, sure, it was focused on birds, but it gave me a lot of really great ideas about and concepts that I could then apply that I knew I wanted to apply to, um, snakes still and... reptiles,
2: still reptiles.
3: <laughs> yeah, Right. That that was a joke. So <laughs> it, it was really cool because, you know, honestly, you know, working for a boy, a bird organization, it became very clear in the very beginning. I was very passionate about snakes. So it was also very cool that people would share with me, pictures of different birds eating the snakes (laughs) around super useful data (laughs) yeah um and it was really cool to see because there were some really interesting observations that you know again um nobody's really looked at the the predator prey dynamic from from that side from birds Mm -hmm. and snakes or and other reptiles in fact um and so these kinds of things started to play on my mind um and uh birdlife South Africa is also made up of honest, so one of the um the one of my colleagues there actually used to be my teaching assistant um at my university mm-hmm. so i I knew her so she came from the science background and I think that helped in thinking about how science can be applied um to conservation and you know i think since since when, uh, since I was younger, I think that impact of wanting to do something bigger, um, something more than myself was always there, and I think that was this was when it finally started to feel like I could do something of the sort.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I was still volunteering with with Save the Snakes and um, so what, what I didn't mention is that when I was, um, when I was in my, my second year of my master's, um, I had the opportunity to go to the World Congress of Herpetology, uh, which was in China that year. Mm. Um, and so having been to one co- World Congress um, already, I knew that I wanted to go to the next one. Um, and so while I was still working at BirdLife South Africa in the end of 2019, I made a plan to go to the World Congress of Herpetology in New Zealand, which was in um, New Zealand uh, at the beginning of 2020, where I, of course, met Mark and some other really cool herpetologists. Um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to the Herp Rangers because yes. I can.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, and, and that reignited my, uh, I guess, interest in wanting to do a bit more applied work in in uh, with herps um and with snakes um so i had been thinking about wanting to do a phd um and in fact um i'm sure this is going to be beneficial to a lot of people that um always get you know feel like they get shut down um i had applied to do a phd in in australia um long story short i got the I got into the PhD, but I didn't get the funding. Um, mm-hmm. And it seemed like that year, most people you know, didn't really have much funding anyways.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it ended up working out for the better because I think it would have been with COVID last year, I think it would have been a struggle to try and manage everything. Yeah. Um, and so then I came back to South Africa after the World Congress and I knew I wanted to change things up. Um, and i had so some of my friends um that i had some of my herb friends in south africa had just taken over this really cool reptile park in in south africa and they were looking for some really cool partnerships um and that's where i started to think about ideas of of creating a a very cool project focusing on education and conservation Mm -hmm. um and then so, I, I spoke to these, to my friends, and we kind of created this project, which I'll speak about just in a minute. Um, and in conjunction with that, I also knew that I wanted to do my PhD. Um, and so I started my PhD at the beginning of this year. Um, and because a lot of education and conservation around snakes at the moment is around snake bite. Um, it just seems fit, fitting that my PhD also focuses on understanding uh, venomous snakes in relation to snake bite.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and I think it was, it, it's, it's exciting for me now to finally be in a place where I'm doing exactly what I want to do, especially mm-hmm. in terms of the PhD, um, because a lot of people get caught up into doing projects that they don't necessarily want to do Mm -hmm. and you might feel the pressure um i do think it was really great that i took that break because i feel much more ready to take on a phd now than i would have felt um a couple of years ago
0: of course
3: yeah so so yeah it's, it's really exciting um i'm currently um writing my proposal i have about two months to submit a proposal to hopefully eventually become a PhD candidate. Um, it's really, really exciting to learn about um, venomous snakes. Um, also, having done my, my master's on diet and venom evolution, um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of um, synergies between right. the ideas that I got, <laughs> um, the impact of diet and venom. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not I do hope to look at some of those things um, currently my project very much looks at behavioral aspects um, in terms of defensive striking um, okay. and 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 I'm hoping to do a large scale assessment of snakebite in South Africa. Uh-huh. Um, that would so, be so
0: useful whenever yeah, I've heard so, about you know big snake snakebite studies they've almost exclusively been based in India where, of course, snakebite kills, I think it's hundreds of thousands of people a year um, because of Russell Swipers that live on the verges between uh, rice paddies. And and they're extremely dangerous snakes. Um, So, I mean, it really, really would be valuable to have that perspective from from Southern Africa as well.
3: Yeah, so uh, it's uh, very interesting because in South Africa, we, it's it's, snakebite is not as much of a problem mm-hmm. as it is in in Central Africa, or even right. you know in places like Zimbabwe and Botswana, one of the obviously one of the obvious um, reasons is because we have better healthcare right. um, that we can provide. But what I'm hoping to do is understand where there are flaws, where cases are not going reported, and also how uh, our understanding of species or you know the behavior of, of some of these species in South Africa can help us in the rest of Africa because mm-hmm. you find a lot of these um, species in the rest of Africa as well right. and and that's the main question for a long time when it came to snake bite the, a big focus was uh, you know creating anti venoms understanding venom variation um, not necessarily the ecology uh, side of things um, and I think that's kind of where the shift is going, uh, very much globally, but it, it, it really excites me to be able to explore these different um, options in, during my PhD.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So I, I have one last question uh, before we wrap up. And that is, if you could give a message to young people like you both, you know, growing up in Africa, who might not have access to the the resources that people in, in, you know, in the US or in Europe might have, and to people who, I guess, are, you know, fascinated by these things, what would you, what would you tell them?
3: Mm, so there's, okay, I'm going to give, I'm going to give two messages for the simple reason that you get people that are interested in... Working with herps. And I'm very excited that uh, when one of the schools that we visited recently, it was a girl that, you know, listened to our talk and said, Okay, how do I become what you are? Um, And, you know, honestly, I I told her, you know, there's different career options that you can take go to university, pursue zoology, um, and in the meantime, keep learning about reptiles, Um, go to your snake park. Um, Mm -hmm. There are people there that are willing to help you um, willing to advise you about uh, Different options even when it comes to reptiles. There's such a huge diversity Mm -hmm. Um, So so seek that help I think um, that help is a lot more available now than it was um, when we were much younger Um, and then to the, the the ones that are kind of in between and still have a fear of snakes, again, go to your reptile park um, or museum or, or get out there in terms of learning about um, wildlife and and reptiles specifically. Mm. They are such a fascinating group of animals, um, and there's so much to <laughs> and they have so much to offer. Um, you know, one of the biggest reasons why i love reptiles is is that they're really such a resilient group um you can find them anywhere they're honestly doing the coolest thing in the environment Mm -hmm. you can watch um you know a snake trying to feed on a gecko but you can find that same gecko trying to feed on that snake um like how cool is that right so so yeah, um, I think it's important to, to explore options. There are so many. Um, there are books available. Read, read, read. Um, it makes a huge difference. Um, and and you know, um, hopefully, uh, you know, I I think I can announce this now. Um, I am also working on a book with about fifty other women from around the world. Um, it's a women in herpetology book. That focuses on our stories um, and you know how we grew up, how we got into herpetology, and yeah, it'll come out at some point. I'm still busy working on it, but I'm but so excited about like this. that.
2: Yeah Yeah, that's, it's extremely necessary too. I think yeah. that's, uh, that's extremely necessary too. We, we need more women in herpetology and in all sciences in general.
0: Yeah. There and it's important to hear the diversity them. of stories behind the people, because yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to say, oh, we need more women in, in herpetology, but it's, it's not always so clear how to make that happen and, and how this is why I asked you these, these provocative, like, make a statement to the people questions, because I think it's important that, that people understand that you don't have to have a specific background in order to, like, my background has been extremely different from your background and Gabriel's background and Ethan's background and all of these things. And, and that those differences in background are still allowing us to, you know, we're still pursuing the same sort of goals and you, you can still make a lot with a very different background.
2: Yeah. But, but I think that yeah. it's, it's important for particu- particularly for women to understand that it, it is to, you know, to have role models to look at, to, mm-hmm. to have other herpetologies, role models to look at, because it drives me crazy when I do the, when you look at your audience in your social media it always drives me crazy that i you know i'm a scientific illustrator I, i'm always posting about reptiles and amphibians and animals and dinosaurs and extinct 80 percent of my following is male and it drives me insane i would mm-hmm. like to see you know a, a bigger uh you know a chunk of a female audience and i know and i know because i've talked to other science that it's a similar experience that they have. So it's important for, for for women, I think, to have role models to look at and say, yes, I can, I can do this that I want to do. You know, even though society might not be telling me that, I can yep. do that, you know?
3: Yeah. And, you know, just on that point, I think it's important that... Um, so for me personally, I think social media plays a huge role in, like, the content that you have. If you're following herpetologists on Twitter, if you have um, herpetology-focused content on Facebook and Instagram, it's going to be a huge motivation in terms of learning more about um, herbs around the world. Um, even as, as a herpetologist based in South Africa, it's always fascinating to learn about what other herpetologists are doing mm-hmm. around the world.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, And yes, I think it's important that women often, you know, women relate to women more quite naturally. I also think that there needs to be a shift in the way that we, we showcase the fact that men and women in herpetology work together. Mm -hmm. We can work together Mm -hmm. and it, you know, we, we work in the field together all the time, yet that's not necessarily portrayed as much as it should. Um, And it's one of the things I'm hoping to kind of change as well. So my colleague and I that are are working on the snake and education project, um, you know, he's a white male, I'm a female of color. Um, That dynamic changes a lot of the way we're portraying our project because now we're showing Mm -hmm. a partnership between what might in the past not have been likely um, or not have been very popular. Um, but we, you know, it needs, we need to show that it, we go beyond color and gender and all these different, um, different things, because at the end of the day, we all work towards our passion for, for hoops.
0: Absolutely. What a great thing to end on. Thank you so much you all for being on the show. And with that, thank you all for listening. Uh, this has been the Squamates podcast. Uh, Gabriel, where can one find you on the internet?
2: Uh, I am at, at Serpent Ilus on Instagram and on Twitter, and Gabriel Lugato Art on Facebook, and my website is Gabriel
0: And Ethan, where can one find you?
1: I am at Black Mud Puppy almost everywhere, social media wise, and my website is ethancosak.com.
0: And Hiral, where can one find you?
3: I am at HeroNike25 on Twitter, uh, at Hero's Hive on Instagram, Nike on Facebook, and HeroNike.wordpress.com.
0: Excellent. You can find me at Mark MarkShirts M-A-R-K-S-T-H-E-R-Z, on Twitter, on Instagram, and at MDShirts on Facebook. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at SquamatesPod on Instagram at SquamatesPod on Facebook at SquamatesPod on all the different things at SquamatesPod you can contact us by writing to squamatespod at gmail.com or asking us on Twitter you can also uh, leave us a review on yeah, iTunes do. or other places we love your reviews pres- so much when they're not so nice but You know, we we get on with it. And um, yeah, do let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what your thoughts are on all of the things that we talk about. And um, as we like to say on the show.